Hello, and welcome to Troy and the Trojan War. I am Professor Kozlowski, and I will be guiding you through the vagaries of both Homer's great epics and the culture and the history and other stuff surrounding them. Um, but before we get started, a few things. Um, first off, you're probably not required to listen to this lecture. Um, if you are listening to it, you are probably in one of two categories. Either you are one of my regular podcast li listeners, in which case this lecture is probably not for you. Feel free to skip to the next one. Um, or you are one of my students who probably missed the syllabus lecture. And I instructed you to listen to this instead, in which case, keep on listening, because there's a lot of really important information in our discussion of the syllabus today. Um, this class is going to be run in some pretty unusual ways, even by Montclair hybrid standards. Um, not that it needs to be any more unusual than Montclair's hybrid standards. Um, suffice it to say, if I sent you here, great, keep on listening. If you weren't sent here, if you just are here accidentally, uh, you may want to consider waiting for the class to start or something like that. It's entirely up to you. Um, we will likely go over this on the first day of class, um, although I am recording this well in advance of that date. Um, so if you do not want to sit through an extremely boring class of me telling you the exact same stuff for an, an hour and a half, um, maybe wait for it. But again, up to you. Um, First and foremost, let me introduce myself a little bit. Again, I'm Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've been teaching at Montclair for, for about five years at this point. It, it seems like a long time, um, but it helps that I was teaching during the pandemic, and, and that makes everything seem longer. Um, I'm an adjunct professor, which means that I am not a full-time professor at Montclair. Um, I teach at a wide variety of institutions in northern New Jersey. Um, this semester alone, I am teaching this class here at Montclair. I am teaching a section of mythology at Montclair on Fridays. Um, I am teaching two sections of the philosophy of love and friendship at Ramapo, and I am teaching one section of ethics at Bergen Community College. And this is a pretty run-of-the-mill standard fall semester for me, to be perfectly honest. Way too many classes, way too many in, like, curricula, multiple disciplines. That's just kind of how I roll at this point. Um, adjunct professors don't get paid a whole heck of a lot of money to teach the classes they do. We are the fry cooks of the academic world. Um, we are paid by basically the class, and it is, you know, perfect gig economy example of how academia does its business. Um, but that works for me because I just teach a whole bunch of classes at a whole bunch of different schools, and if you squint, it looks like full-time pay. So it all kind of works out for all of us. Um, now that said, I am getting surprisingly experienced at this business of teaching as an adjunct professor. Like I said, I've seen a lot of different classes over uh, several years at this point in time. Um, but I should stress this is the first ever time I am teaching Troy and the Trojan War. Um, and to be perfectly honest, I am downright terrified. Um, like, I've created curricula from basically scratch before. You know, my version of the mythology class at Montclair is basically like a homebrew of what I used to learn when I was an undergrad, along with some suggestions from my department chair and looking through the textbook and seeing what I could pull off. Um, likewise, the class Philosophy of Love and Friendship at Ramapo is largely my construction but this one, I really was given not a whole lot of guidance. I was basically shown a syllabus or two and told good luck and have fun and 
this is kind of what I've created. Um, so what we're going to do this semester is study, shockingly, Troy and the Trojan War. Um, by which I mean we're going to talk a lot about the Iliad. Um, when people talk about the Trojan War, they are usually talking about the Iliad, or they usually have the Iliad in mind, or they usually are talking about the effects of the Iliad, or some sort of historical like argument based on the Iliad. The fact of the matter is, from a historical perspective, from the perspective of archaeologists, it is still very much an open question whether the Trojan War actually happened. Like, I know that you've probably seen news articles from time to time talking about, you know, there's this big new archaeological find that totally proves the existence. No, no, it doesn't. Um, really, the jury is very much still out about whether or not the Trojan War even happened. But the fact of the matter is, it's kind of the most famous war that never happened, as far as that's concerned. Um, it is extremely well discussed, and the fact of the matter is, Homer's Iliad is the foundation of Western culture and literature as we have it. Everything we do today, as far as the literary world is concerned, as far as storytelling is concerned, as far as our own perspective of history is concerned, is largely informed by Homer's understanding of the Iliad and by his particular telling of this story. Everything from Marvel superhero movies to highbrow academic literature to the history that you study in your textbooks is very much a product of Homer's world. Um, so I cannot stress enough that this is a big deal. Um, and as a consequence, we're going to take a really deep look at the Iliad, at the Odyssey, at the Homeric tradition, both in the sense of Homer as a writer and sort of the Greek literary world surrounding Homer. We're going to look at some of the effects of Homer, some of the other works that have taken the Iliad as an obvious starting point and the way that it's changed that story or adapted it or modified it or turned it into propaganda. Um, there's a lot to talk about here. And on the one hand, that means that this is a really broad, kind of rangy class. We're going to be doing a lot of weird stuff. Um, we're going to be talking about the Iliad as a work of literature. We're going to talk about the Iliad as a work of history. We're going to talk about the Iliad as a work of propaganda. We are going to talk about the Iliad as the inspiration for an entire Greek culture. We're going to talk about the Iliad as being the foundational text that justifies the identity of the Greeks, the Romans, the English, like you name it. This is at the core of a lot of cultural baggage if not all, of Western cultural baggage. The Iliad has frequently been described as the single most important literary work in the whole of Western culture, and this semester we're going to talk about why and how that is. Um, and, as will probably not surprise you, as hopefully should not surprise you, we're going to read the Iliad. Like, the whole thing. Like, all of it. I'm not kidding. The, the whole thing. We're going to do it in five weeks. Yeah, I'm a bastard. I know it. Um, but seriously, I've got a translation that's really accessible. Um, I've read it at least once at this point. Um, I've read other translations of the Iliad, and I can tell you this one's going to blow by way faster than reading Fagel's or reading Alexander Pope for, 
you know, or Lattimore or any of the usual Iliad translators. Um, we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but suffice it to say, you're going to need to know the Iliad if you're going to want to have these conversations about its, its impact and its role in Western culture. And honestly, I would feel really weird not teaching the whole Iliad. Um, now, I should stress, the Iliad is weird. It's got a lot of stuff in it, and not all of that stuff is good, I will say. Like, as much as this is considered this enormous classic of Western literature and perhaps the most important text ever written in Western culture, like, all of that preamble aside, when you read it today, it's kind of awkward and a little bloated in places, and some of it isn't logically consistent, and it's kind of really long unnecessarily in some places. And we're going to talk about that. Like, we're going to read the ugliness of the Iliad along with the prettiness of the Iliad. We are not going to do the excerpt thing, although I've done that in the past. We are not going to, like, pick and choose which passages are important. No, we're going to read the whole damn thing, and it's going to be a mess, and it's going to sometimes drive you nuts, and we're going to talk about those ugliness and nuts-driving passages as well as all the fun stuff that's really important that, that people have been talking about for literally 3,000 years at this point. Um, so that said, let's talk about the actual texts that we're going to use here. And since we're talking about the Iliad, let's start with the Iliad. Um, in this class, we're going to be reading uh, Stanley Lombardo's translation of the Iliad. It has been around for... A about 25 years at this point, so it is not, like, brand new, but it is relatively hot off the presses as far as academic translations are concerned. Um, what's more, the reason why I'm leaning on Lombardo for this and for virtually all of the other translations in this class is because he is super-duper accessible. Um, many scholars of the Iliad, like, there's even this whole debate in the study of the Iliad and among classic scholars entirely, like, you can even read some of the discussion of that in our, one of our other textbooks. Um, a lot of the discussion has sort of emphasized the Iliad needs to be distant. Like, it needs to retain its epic scope for us to be able to read it and appreciate it the way that the ancient Greeks did. We need to recognize that this is a relic of a bygone era. And as a consequence, a lot of translators approach the Iliad from that perspective. They're like, okay, this should be a little hard to read. Like, not Shakespeare hard to read, but, like, elevated, complicated, using big fancy words that distance us from the text a little bit, using an epic tone and scale that distances us from the characters and from the language a little bit. And I see the argument there, I see the point, but the assumption that they're making is that we are reading the Iliad the way that the ancient Greeks did, and specifically not the contemporaries of Homer, but rather the folks who read Homer 400 years after the fact, who sort of become the foundation of Greek civilization as we know it. You know, big important dudes like Plato and Aristotle, big important writers like Sophocles and Euripides. The assumption for most classical scholars is that the whole the Homeric epics, like the Iliad and the Odyssey, were old by the time that anyone was really reading them, discussing them, and by the time that they became important. And... I don't want to make that assumption in this class. 
Like, if you're sitting in my mythology class, I will make that assumption all day long. Like, I will sort of blend together while also trying to, like, keep us at least a little bit aware of the different periods in Greek history, the fact that Homer does predate most of the great classical Greek writers and thinkers. Um, but here, we're not bound to that. Like, we're going to talk about those classical Greek writers. We're going to read some Euripides. We're going to talk about Homer in that context. We're going to talk about appreciating Homer the way that Plato and Aristotle and Euripides and Sophocles and so on and so forth would have appreciated him. But I also want to read the Iliad as it was in its own time. Like, one of the projects we're going to undertake in this class is to understand each era's take on the Iliad and the Odyssey, including its own. So we're going to talk about the history that, that provides the foundation for the historical events that Homer may or may not be recounting. We are going to talk about Homer in his own time. We are going to talk about the classical Greek writers who are talking about Homer 400 years after the fact. And we're going to talk about the Romans, and we're going to talk about the Brits, and we're going to talk about other writers who are taking Homer way after the fact. But the fact of the matter is, I want you to read the Iliad, not as this ancient text that has been passed down over generations and so on and so forth. I want you to read it like it's being told now. I want you to read it the way that you would watch a Marvel movie, or the way that you would listen to a current podcast. I want the story to be immediate. Because... As much as that isn't the way that Plato heard it originally, that is the way that Homer heard it originally, in all likelihood. And that's the first place I want you to be. And Lombardo does that so well. He is not standing on airs. He will occasionally jump into epic like narrative when it is appropriate, but only when it is appropriate. And until that happens, you're going to hear these characters, you know, mighty Achilles and the great Agamemnon insulting each other and swearing at each other and getting just down and dirty with contemporary, like, ugly language. And I'm totally cool with that. It helps us because it helps us to understand that this isn't this hermetically sealed text that's been sealed in stone for 2,500 years. It helps us to understand that this also isn't, you know, boring and dumb. Like, this text has a lot going on. It teaches people today as much as it teaches people way back then. The power of this text has endured for 3,000 years, and I want to respect that, not by turning it into, you know, this big important poem, but rather by emphasizing how immediate and significant it can be, even in our own lives. So we're going to read Lombardo. And then we're going to read Lombardo's translation of the Odyssey. Now we're not going to read the whole thing. Like, reading the Iliad is an ambitious enough project for one class. I am not going to, like, compound this by having you read the whole of Lombardo's translation of the Odyssey as well. Um, we are going to read instead the Essential Odyssey, which is, like, Lombardo translated the entirety of the Odyssey, and then he, like, cut it in half, and he took out all the parts that he thought were less important, and we're left with, like, a text that is half the size of the original, and we're only going to read, like, maybe two-thirds of that. So we're going to spend five weeks reading the Iliad cover to cover. We're going to spend two weeks reading chunks of the Odyssey and getting a sense of what's actually going on there, like just so we get a taste, just so we understand the main thrust of the writing. Um, we're going to do the same thing with the Aeneid. 
Um, like, we're going to read even less of the Aeneid. But Lombardo also conveniently has a translation of the the Aeneid, and he also conveniently has a essential version of the Aeneid where he cuts out half the text. Um, so the three primary texts that we're going to be reading are Lombardo's translation of the Iliad in its entirety, Lombardo's translation the essential Odyssey, which we're going to read about two-thirds of thereabouts, and we're also going to have Lombardo's translation, The Essential Aeneid, which we're only going to read like 60 or 70 pages of. Um, now that said, all three of these texts are, again, super old. Um, we are talking like 3,000 plus years, or 2,500 plus years in the case of Homer. We're talking 2,000 years in the case of Virgil. You can find alternative translations of these texts online for free if you don't want to spring for, you know, 15 bucks to buy the book. I don't recommend it, though. Because, again, we're going to be reading a lot of this stuff, we're going to be reading it at a pretty good clip, and we're going to be expecting a certain amount of knowledge and familiarity with everything that we read, which if you're reading the old stuff, if you're reading Fagels, or if you're going on Project Gutenberg and downloading Alexander Pope's translation, it's going to take you a lot more time to get through it. And what's more, when I talk about it in class or in these lectures, you're not going to be able to follow along with the page numbers every time I shoot them out. Um, now, as often as not, I'm going to use the line numbers so you can, in fact, follow along with a different translation. If you were a diehard Fagels fan and refused to read that Lombardo trash, that's your prerogative. Go ahead, you do so with my blessing. Um, but I encourage you to get these books, read these translations, especially if you've never encountered the text before. Like, if this is, for some mad reason, the third time you're reading the Iliad, which, you know, God bless you, I'm not sure what you were doing in high school, but, you know, good on you, um, that's fine. Like, feel free to read a translation you're not familiar with or a translation that you love dearly or whatever. Um, again, there's so many translations of the Iliad out there, so many translations of the Odyssey, so many translations of Virgil. Like, do what you want. Um, but for this class, the page numbers, the line numbers, the specific wording used, I'm going to be using Lombardo primarily. So I highly encourage you to get those books in particular. Um, now, the other textbook we're going to use is kind of our secondary reference point. Um, like, trying to find a textbook to go along with this class was a bit of a nightmare. I'm currently still swimming in, like, three or four other failed textbooks that I looked over and was like, nope, this is not going to do it. Um, the one that I ultimately landed on is The Cambridge Companion to Homer. And it is delightful. Um, it is one of a massive series. The Cambridge Companions exist for a wide variety of different disciplines in the humanities. Like, I've got one on Wittgenstein. I've used one on various ethical issues and other stuff in philosophy. Um, like, there's tons of these books. They're all wonderful in various ways. The great thing about the Cambridge Companions, though, is that they are a great introduction to a wide breadth of scholarship. Um, so we're going to read, like a good 150 to 200 pages of the Cambridge Companion to Homer. Primarily, we're going to stray towards the back half of the book, though. We're not going to read the introductory stuff where, you know, scholars wax poetic about the Iliad and the Odyssey. Like, we'll do that in class, thank you very much, by actually reading the book. Um, what instead we're going to be looking at is Homer's styles, Homer's, like, 
provenance, the, the sort of world that he lived in. We're going to use the Cambridge Companion to talk about the archaeology, to talk about the history, to talk about the culture. We're going to use this to look at different interpretations down the line, like Homer in ancient Rome, Homer in you know, his Greek world, Homer as a Hittite author, um, or at least his connections to the Hittite world. Um, like, all this stuff is delightfully, wonderfully in this book. And what's more, as much as each of the individual articles is kind of summary and lackluster and really not all that exciting, every single one of them is well-documented with annotations. Each author is, in fact, summarizing a wide body of scholarship that exists around Homer, and, conveniently enough for you, that includes an annotated bibliography that has all these references to all these other really important books that have been written on the subject, and that will absolutely kickstart your research process right from the go. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of really good things to say about this book. We will be referring to it often. Um, if, in fact, you are dealing with trouble getting books at this point in time, either because the, the bookstore doesn't have them, or because I screwed up and the bookstore like never got the order, or because you don't have Amazon Prime, so you've got limitations on when you can get this stuff, or you're looking for the... whatever. Um, I highly recommend get the Iliad as soon as you possibly can. Um, the way this class is going to work, we're going to start with one little reading from the Cambridge Companion to Homer, in which we're going to talk about style and the way that Homer writes, um, I'm hopefully going to be able to track down an article, like an online resource that duplicates that. If not, I might get creative. Um, whatever the case may be, that is the only bit of the Cambridge Companion to Homer we're going to read for the next, like, seven weeks. Um, so you've got plenty of time to get your hands on the Cambridge Companion to to Homer, you've got five weeks before we're going to start in on the Essential Odyssey, and you've got like ten weeks before we start in on the Aeneid. Um, so start with the Iliad. We'll be starting that, like, not next week, but the following week. Or I think, guess since our schedule is really wonky this semester, it'll be a little bit different. Um, suffice it to say, it won't be for quite a while. Um, that we get to the other texts in this class. So the Iliad, first and foremost, go out and track that book down first. It should be really cheap to get a hold of anyway, even if you are buying it new and getting it shipped special. Um, so with that said, that that's the syllabus situation, or the uh, textbook situation. Um, we have four textbooks. They are relatively cheap. Like, I think if you buy all four of them brand new, you're looking at maybe $80 to $90. Um, th that's honestly high for one of my classes. I usually prefer going with even fewer textbooks and even cheaper. Um, but again, so many of these you can get on the cheap. You can get almost all of them used. It should not be undoable. And again, if you are strapped for cash, if you can't make the investment, there are alternatives. Feel free to ask me if you you know, legitimately can't get the book, um, and I'll recommend some other sources that you can use. Um, now, we've already talked a little bit about what to expect in this class, the fact that we're going to talk about the Iliad, obviously, the fact that we're going to talk about, in addition to the Iliad, its reputation amongst other writers, its place in its own culture, so on and so forth. All of that is what's basically being discussed in the next, like, page and a half of the syllabus, um, which, if you aren't looking at the syllabus, you should be able to track it down on Canvas. 
Um, it should be readily available for you. Um, you can click on like one of the top links on the modules page and it'll take you to the syllabus, or just go to the syllabus page in the menu on the left. Or if you are listening to this lecture because I was you were pointed to it by the announcements page, I'd probably link to the syllabus as well. Um, so I'd highly recommend that you follow along with the syllabus as we continue our discussion here. Uh, but like I said, for the next page and a half of the syllabus, we are doing basically the general education requirements and the course description, which is all stuff that isn't terribly important to you specifically. Um, this is more me reporting to my superiors and making sure that like everybody has at least some similarity to their class as opposed to everybody just you know freely teaching whatever the heck they want to about Troy, the Trojan War, or whatever in this class, and there being no accountability whatsoever. So let's just... Skip through all that stuff and get to the next part that is directly relevant to you, the student, namely the conduct section. And I imagine that if you've been in college at all for any length of time at this point, you've probably seen a conduct section like this in the past. I doubt that any of this will be new to you, but I do want to still drive home some of the important ideas here um, and also emphasize a couple of the things that will be sort of specifically important to our class. Um, first and foremost... Cell phones should be turned off and ignored throughout class. Um, I gotta stress, in this weird hybrid format of Montclair's, we have a lot less class time than we would normally. Um, the way that these classes would usually work, like if you had a once a week class in a, in, you know, at Montclair, you would end up sitting in class for two and a half hours the, that one time a week, and the rest of the week would be de de dedicated to you doing your homework, doing whatever research you need to do, doing whatever reading you needed to do to prepare for class, and so on and so forth. With the hybrid format, the assumption is half of that class time is also going to be online. Um, now, there are a number of different approaches to this. Like, Montclair has experimented with a wide variety of hybrid formats to online and in-class learning since the pandemic started. And trust me when I say that the process by which this was narrowed down was quite the shit show, not just at Montclair, but at every school where I was teaching. Like, 2020 hit professors like a ton of bricks, and we're still trying to figure out how to deal with this new paradigm. Um... Suffice it to say that the hybrid class, as Montclair has it, is both nicely flexible, given the difficulties of teaching a class in the post-pandemic world, but also kind of unfortunately restrictive. Um, the advantage here is that we get to do whatever we want in the time that we don't meet during class. Like, when a professor is told they're teaching a hybrid class, they have a wide variety of options as far as how to deliver the material they want to deliver. Do they want to meet online at some point during the week? That's fine. Do they want to not meet online and instead just meet the one time a week and get cram all the learning into that one session? That's fine. Um, the way that I've kind of solved the problem and the way that I solved the whole pandemic problem in the first place was to start actually recording the lectures that I would normally be presenting in class, um, such as this one, for example. It's actually been really successful for me. Like, it's a lot of work because I'm, you know, basically doing the class twice in some cases. But the great advantage of it is because the internet, now literally all of the classes I've ever taught are online. And anybody can listen to them for free. Which means great 
for students because, you know, if you, in fact, you miss a day of class, you don't have to miss the lecture. It's right there. You just have to, like, click on it and listen to it. Uh, it's great for me because, you know, I have this in my back pocket at all times, and if a student does miss class, I can direct them to it, or if I have to miss class, I can direct the whole class to it. Um, it's also great for everybody else. Like, I've gotten a weird following on, uh, on Anchor and on Spotify of just people all over the world who have just been listening to these lectures because it sounds like a good idea. Like, I've actually got followers. I'm starting to make money online, although, again, not for this class because reasons. Um, suffice it to say, that's the way I've solved the hybrid problem as well. Um, when we do class this week, or every week, it's going to basically consist of one lecture that I've recorded for you that you will listen to on your own time, at your own discretion, and one lecture where we all meet, and we all see each other, and we all talk about this stuff, and we have a proper class. Um, there you can ask questions where you can't to the actual recorded lecture. There we will talk about class busyness, where we can't in the recorded lecture. Um, it works. It's not ideal. I'd still rather be meeting, you know, for the full two and a half hours each week, or twice a week, or however we want to do it. Um, but it gets the job done. But what that means is that all the class time we have together is that much more important. It's that much more rarefied. Um, there is so little wiggle room. Um, with the hybrid schedule, the way that I have it worked out here. Um, so we can't spend it, like, distracted by phone calls or, you know, screwing around on your laptop or whatever the case may be. Um, for those hour and 15-minute periods that we meet in class, I expect you to be attentive. Um, and I definitely don't want you distracting others. Now, that said, I'm not going to be a tyrant about this. Um, I'm not going to collect cell phones at the beginning of class. I'm not going to, you know, walk around and look at what you're looking at on your laptop. That's that's not the way I do things. Um, my assumption is that you are grown-ups. Um, I am often wrong in that assumption. I have had many students who have behaved like children and then whined about it at the very end of the semester, and I have very little patience for that sort of thing. Um, suffice it to say, if... I'm going to let you do whatever you damn well please in class so long as it doesn't distract anyone else. If you're going to be sitting in the back of the class playing a video game, I just don't want to know it. Like, God knows there came a point in my seminary study where the only way I was able to stay awake in my classes was to sit in the back of the class and play Super Hexagon the entire time, because how else are you supposed to, you know, stay awake during a lecture on premillennial dispensationalism? Um, suffice it to say... If that's what you need to do to get through my class without, you know, embarrassing yourself in front of all the other students, you do your thing. But I am going to still hold you accountable for the assignments, for the exams, whatever else you run into. And you will be a lot better equipped for all of those assignments if you are, in fact, paying attention. Um, so you got to walk that line. you got to be careful about it. The best way that I can recommend for you to behave in those class sessions is to stay attentive. Um, don't be texting on your phone. Don't be distracted by YouTube videos or whatever. Don't be playing video games. Instead, keep your full attention. Raise your hand regularly. Let's make sure that we are communicating. Because if we don't, it's going to go badly for you by the end of the semester, even if it doesn't seem that way earlier on. Um, so again, 
Keep your cell phones turned off. Keep your laptops for note-taking purposes primarily. Don't get distracted or you will pay for it eventually. Um, second, and this is a little bit more fuzzy, late assignments will not be accepted without prior consultation with the professor, i.e. before the assigned due date. Um, normally, I would start my discussion of this point by saying that this is a lie and I will totally accept late assignments, but my policies have changed. Um, I do not accept late assignments anymore for reasons that will become abundantly clear as we go on talking about the grading procedure this semester. Um, the fact of the matter is, with all of the assignments in this class, all of those assignments are optional. Um, the way that the grading scheme in this class works is very different from the way that I usually grade classes at Montclair. You are going to be a bit of an experiment as far as that is concerned um, to see if it works as well here as it's worked at Ramapo for me in the past. Um, but the way we're going to do things is each of the assignments is optional and you do not need to complete any single one of those assignments. Instead, you just need to accumulate a certain number of points by the end of the semester in order to pass, which, like I said, we'll talk about that more in a moment. Um, but what that means is, since each of the assignments is optional, I do not expect you to complete any single one of them. Um, I expect you to complete enough of them by the end of the semester to pass and to get a decent grade in this class, um, but it means that I'm definitely not going to be chasing you around trying to get a particular assignment from you at a particular date, because you may just choose not to do that assignment and do a different assignment instead, or to plan your schedule in a different way. Um, but that also means that I don't want to be collecting crap from you way after the fact. Um, so, no late assignments at all. Whatever I set as the due date is the due date. And if it's not in by that due date, then I'm going to assume that you didn't turn it in, and even if you do turn it in later, I'm not going to grade it because i got better things to do with my time. Um, there is one exception to this rule. Uh, namely, if you can't make the final exam, I am willing to work with you in order to make sure that you actually are able to sit for the exam if that's important. And I will, in fact, accept the research paper late, but I do not recommend it. Um, the reason why those two assignments get leeway is because they are big enough and scary enough that they alone can define your entire grade. So if, in fact you, you know, fall into a coma at the beginning of the semester and only wake up two weeks before the end of the semester, which apparently happens to many of my students, you, you'd be surprised. Um, if that is, in fact, the case, you can still save yourself. You are going to work your friggin' ass off if that's the way that you're going to do things, but it is theoretically possible. Um, you will probably not do well. You will probably fail if you take that particular tack in my class. Um, but that said, it is possible. If, in fact, you find that you are very deep into very hot water, those two assignments all by themselves can bail you out, um, which is why I'm willing to be a little bit fuzzier on it. Now, that said, I am going to punish the living crap out of you if you are turning in the research paper especially late. Um, whenever those late assignments are, are in fact turned in, you can expect to get a pretty substantial penalty on them. But like I said, we'll talk about that more when we actually get to the assignments themselves. Um, next on the docket is plagiarism. Plagiarism will not be tolerated. Plagiarized assignments will immediately receive zero credit. I should stress, I am fucking done with plagiarism. 
Um, ever since the pandemic, ever since the, say, fall of 2020, plagiarism has been a freaking blight in my classes. Um, that first semester after the pandemic had really gone on underway and everybody was online in the fall of 2020, I swear I had something like a third of each of my classes plagiarize their assignments, and I failed every last fucking one of them. And I regret nothing about it, and I suspect they have all of the regrets, which is fine with me. I am sick to death of plagiarism. I am not tolerating it. If you plagiarize in my class, you will get a zero on that assignment, and you can consider yourself very lucky if you pass the entire if you pass the course at all. Um, I am done with plagiarism. I would literally rather you turn in an assignment that says Professor Kozlowski is a giant dick repeated over and over and over for five pages than turn in a plagiarized assignment. And what's more, I will give you a better grade on the on the Professor Kozlowski is a dick assignment than I would on the plagiarized assignment. Like, I cannot stress this enough. Um, you cannot get a zero on an assignment in this class unless you turn in just blank pages, turn in nothing at all, or if you plagiarize. Um, any amount of effort devoted to an assignment, I will reward. Like, I am a teddy bear when it comes to grading, but I will not put up with plagiarism at all, which will come back to that. Um, if you are scared, you should be, you monsters. Anyway, next point on the conduct list. Students should conduct themselves professionally and should preserve the classroom setting as a place for free intellectual discourse. Harassment based on race, sex, gender, religion, or ability will not be tolerated. Again, I suspect you've heard something like this in the past. I don't know what has happened, but since, let's say, generously 2014 or so, the internet has turned into a nightmare world of bile and toxicity and horrible people saying horrible things to each other, and the great advantage of the internet is that it is entirely anonymous and therefore nobody can hold each other accountable for this sort of crap. Obviously, this doesn't work in a classroom environment, and I cannot put up with it in a classroom environment. I'm not going to tolerate this stuff. But more importantly, you know, the primary solution that most people have to, oh my gosh, everybody is so, you know, angry, everybody is so divided politically, everyone is so polarized, is they don't have serious conversations. Like, if you were at Thanksgiving and your Uncle Frank, you know, the weird Uncle Frank who posts the angry stuff on Facebook and, like, causes fights and has had his account deleted, like, twice at this point, if you are at Thanksgiving dinner with Uncle Frank... And you can just have that sort of rule in place. We do not talk politics. We do not talk religion. We do not talk about gender or sexuality. Or we do not talk about any number of potentially fraught, controversial issues when Uncle Frank is around. We do not have that luxury in here. Um, the fact of the matter is, as much as you might think that we are just going to be sitting in a class talking about this really old book that's, you know, been around for 2,000, 3,000 years, how could it be that controversial? We're going to be talking about a lot of the cultural issues and a lot of the world surrounding Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. And the Greek world looks very different from our own in a number of very distinct ways. Um, some of those ways you might be familiar with, like it is pretty widely known that the Greeks had a much more charitable view towards homosexuality than we in our American culture often do. Um, so as a consequence, you might expect a more liberal mindset from Homer, but that is not actually really that true. 
Homer's view on homosexuality is very different from our own view, not necessarily more tolerant. And what's more, Homer has a lot of things to say about women especially that are going to rankle a lot of people. Um, for example, we're going to talk about rape in this class quite a bit. Um, because it's a fact of the Greek world in some pretty ugly ways. Women are often not in control of their destinies. Women are often not in control of their bodies. Women are frequently sold or traded or bartered. Like, the very first thing that happens in the Iliad is a woman is passed around by a couple of guys who are basically holding her as a prize, and that's literally the word that we're going to be talking about her as. Women are very seriously objectified in the Iliad. And while Homer is actually a lot better about his treatment and portrayal of women than many of the other Greek writers in his time, it is gonna be problematic if that's not something you're comfortable talking about or reading. If you were not comfortable having a conversation about the reality of rape in the Greek world, you might want to not take this class, because it is something we're going to have to confront and discuss. It is part of the reality that makes Homer's world what it is, what it is and it's also one of the realities that the characters are wrestling with, including the women. Now, that said, I know that in contemporary internet discourse, there is frequently an urge among some people to characterize this as weakness. You can't be a snowflake. You can't live your life according to trigger warnings. The real world does not work that way. I'm not going to get into that particular discussion. What I want to acknowledge is that there are, in fact, very different views about these sorts of subjects. And on the one hand, I want to be sensitive to those students who are legitimately discomfited and bothered by the discussion of serious and significant material, material that could be potentially problematic or troublesome or triggering, as the kids say these days. Um, but that said, in order to properly understand the Iliad, we're going to have to talk about rape, and we're going to have to talk about suicide, and we're going to have to talk about a lot of issues that are, in fact, triggering. Um, so on the one hand, I want to, again, announce at the beginning of class, this is going to happen, be prepared for it when it does. On the other hand, I want to stress, we're not going to gloat over this. This is not going to be a romanticism of a culture that was extremely misogynistic. We are not going to get into the these were real men discussions. Not at all. And what's more important is we can't let the conversation go that way either. Lots of people are going to come to these issues with a lot of varied opinions. And in order to have a serious conversation about this stuff, in order for us to have a measured conversation about what rape meant in the ancient Greek world, or what suicide meant, or what gender roles meant, or what sexuality meant, we're going to have to look at these from a certain amount of distance, a certain amount of objectivity. We're going to look at them as scholars, in short, and not as though our opinions have really all that much bearing on what Homer is trying to say. Like, yes, at the end of the day, we will have to confront Homer with our own perspectives, our own attitudes, our own ethics, and judge him accordingly. But to understand exactly what Homer is saying, we're going to have to leave a lot of those ideas at the door, both the positive and the negative ones, both the potentially troubling ones and the potentially troubled ones. So what this comes down to, what I'm 
talking my way around here, is that we cannot jump down each other's throats for whatever perspective we may hold. If you have a particularly controversial position on rape, then I expect you to talk about it delicately, carefully, intellectually, whether that position is, I can't have this conversation, or we need to have this conversation, it is part of reality. I expect you to respect one another, in short, and not engage in the sort of crazy, wild, shit-flinging internet conversation that turns into personal attacks at the turn of a dime. Um, we need to preserve the classroom as a safe space. That's not to say that it's going to be safe in that sort of broad sense. The fact of the matter is, I want to challenge you. I want to confront your perspectives. I want to, in some case, invite you to substitute Homer's perspectives for your own, and in some cases ask you to reconsider your perspectives, whatever they may be. And in order to be able to do that, in order to challenge one another, in order to be able to question our perspectives, we have to go through a fairly complicated mental gymnastics. Like, it's uncomfortable to have your opinions, to have your perspectives, to have your ideas challenged. Um, but that's, you know, what college is for. My job as your professor is to help you to think like a Greek, which includes thinking like a misogynist, and which includes thinking like a person who is totally okay with pederasty and other forms of homosexuality, and which encourages you to think in ways that are very much out of sync with basically all contemporary perspectives, in order to properly understand what Homer means to a whole bunch of people in their own time. But in order to do that, we need to make sure that everyone feels comfortable airing their own opinions, airing their own perspectives, talking about the ways that Homer interacts with those perspectives, and to be able to do so without fearing that somebody is going to think less of them for it, or that they are going to get outright attacked in the, in the classroom. So what this comes down to, like the basics here, is that you can absolutely express your ideas, and you are encouraged to do so, whatever those ideas may be, no matter how controversial they may be but you cannot make them personal. We have to separate ourselves from our ideas in this class if we're going to talk about these delicate subjects like religion, like rape, like politics, without it devolving into madness. We have to basically hold our ideas at a bit of a distance, be able to treat them objectively, and we cannot absolutely cannot allow anyone to attack each other. I want sweat in this class. I want people to feel vulnerable and to express their ideas and to, you know, question the text and to raise their hand and to say things that might not be totally politically correct and might not be totally, you know, like, impersonal. Um... But at the same time, I can't let those people feel attacked or endangered. I want sweat. I want you to feel extended, perhaps even overextended in this class. I want you to feel challenged. I want you to question your own opinions. But I don't want you attacking, and I don't want you being attacked. I want sweat, 
not blood, not tears. So with that in mind, I will absolutely not tolerate anyone attacking anybody else. Anyone taking this discussion of ideas and turning it into something personal. It is okay to say, I think Homer is expressing XYZ about rape. It is not okay to say, your ideas about rape are naive and wrong. It is okay for you to say, you know, I think... Homer's view of religion is actually really interesting and really robust, perhaps even more robust than the Christian attitude, not Christians are dumb and pagans are totally correct all of the time. In fact, using the term pagan might itself be a little bit offensive in that sense, but we'll get into that as well. Likewise, if you are on the other end of this, if you are feeling attacked, I ask you with all courtesy and politeness, to at least consider the possibility that somebody isn't attacking you. There are different perspectives that are going to be aired and discussed in this class, for sure. That is not suggesting that your perspective, whatever it may be, is wrong. Like, if I've got legitimate factual data to present to contradict your perspective, then I will present it and, you know, we can go from there. But that's not what I'm talking about here. Like, generally, I don't think any of you are going to be ride or die for Schliemann was a good person or, you know, like, the, tr the Trojan War totally happened and no one can convince me otherwise. Like, not a whole lot of people are that hardcore about these things. Um, but the fact of the matter is, if, you know, you have certain attitudes about religion and Homer is questioning them or challenging them in some way, um, I hope that you will recognize that we are not attacking your faith. We are not attacking your beliefs. We are not attacking your attitudes by raising alternatives and talking about their merits, or demerits for that matter. Don't feel attacked if we're not attacking you. Now, if obviously, if you are being attacked and I'm missing it, call me out on it. For God's sake, I do not want you to feel any more uncomfortable than is normal in a college classroom because, you know, college classrooms. Um... I don't want that to be any weirder or rougher than it has to be. Um, so if you feel uncomfortable, if somebody is making your life miserable, if somebody's comments are really out of step and I am totally missing the boat here, let me know and I will clamp down on it. I will absolutely, like, my greatest fear as a professor is making a student feel uncomfortable or endangered or letting my students feel uncomfortable or endangered in some way. Like, I will do literally anything to stop that from happening. Because um, I want you to learn, and you're going to stop learning if you feel literally scared when you come to class. Um, so please, tell me if you do not feel safe in my classroom for whatever reason. Um, but... At the same time, I hope that you will be open to alternatives, be open to different perspectives, be open to what I'm trying to teach in short. Um, and that goes for everybody. I realize that's a lot of discussion about something that is probably does not warrant so much discussion that probably could have been said much easier and probably has been said by some of your professors much more clearly. At any rate, let's get off my soapbox and move to the next point. Pride is overrated, questions and mistakes are encouraged. Like I was just saying, I know that the college classroom is a fraught place. Um, I recognize that as much as, you know, it is incredibly important to me, Professor Kozlowski, scholar of Homer and philosophy, um, that you learn all of these really important books and so on and so forth, and that you read the, the classroom materials and you write the papers, and like, this is all I will ever see of you as a human being. 
I know pretty confidently that, like, this is a very small percentage of what you care about as a college student in the fall of 2022. Um, I recognize you've got a lot going on. And at least some of that is the fact that this is a, like, college is just this really weird combination of the social world that you're interacting with, with your fellow students and your friends and your romantic interests and so on and so forth, as well as like trying to figure yourself out as a young adult, um, in addition to the fact that we're all like supposedly here to learn Homer or whatever. Um, I recognize that for many of you, you walked into this class and you saw, oh my gosh, he or she or they is also taking this class. You know, that person who you've been writing love letters to in your journal and refusing to actually deliver them to that person. Or rather, that person is like this really cool person who is one of your friends and who you want to, you know, look good next to, or maybe you're trying to impress them in some way. I don't know. Whatever. Like, I get that you have this complicated, ugly, nasty, comp like, messy social environment that you're trying to navigate at the same time as you're trying to, you know, learn Homer and stuff. What I want to emphasize, though, is as much as the temptation is to look cool and always have the right answer in this situation, that usually boils down to people just being quiet and really shy, and that's not especially helpful for either of us. It doesn't help me to learn what you need to know as a student, and it doesn't help you to learn this stuff any better. Um, the fact of the matter is, in order to be a good student in this class, in order to learn this material properly, you're going to have to, you know, ask questions, make mistakes, venture wrong answers, raise your hand pretty regularly. And I want you to feel comfortable doing that. And I know that there's only so much I can do about that. Like, I can't stop you from, you know, feeling bad about giving a bad answer, if that's the case. Um, you know, it's... Generally, I'm not going to say that something is a bad answer, but I will, like, gently correct it, and everyone will know, and it's a thing. Like, I, I get it. Um, but at the same time, you gotta, you got to work with me. You have to be willing to look a little dumb in this class, is what it comes down to. Um, in order to learn, you have to, at the very least, admit that there is something you don't know. Like, how are you going to learn if you walk into my class saying, I don't need to know anything about Homer, I have learned everything that I need to know, you know, nothing you will offer me is something that I am interested in, therefore, you know, go fuck yourself, Professor Kozlowski. Like, obviously, that's not a great perspective to be in, and you will probably do very poorly in this class if that's the case, um, unless you are a returning Homeric scholar for some reason. Um, if that's not the case, you got to be willing to make mistakes, look foolish, look dumb. Lord knows I'm going to do it. Like, I'm going to say stupid things all the time. I'm going to get information wrong and have to correct it. I'm going to, like, make stupid gestures in the front of the class. I will have my foot in my mouth 40% of the class. Like, it's going to happen all the time. And I hope that you are encouraged by my foolishness to also be foolish. Because if you are foolish in this class, you will learn a lot better. So make an arrangement. Talk to your friend, talk to your significant other, talk to your romantic interest, and agree. I'm going to look stupid in this class. I'm going to ask stupid questions. I'm going to give the wrong answers. I'm going to make mistakes. And you can too. Because we are both in this to learn. We are both in this to become better at this particular discipline. Um, 
I know that that's not the way it's going to happen. I know that there are lots of students who are going to still be sitting in the back of the class, terrified out of their minds to utter a word. But suffice it to say, I strongly encourage you to look like an idiot in this class. It'll help you. It'll help me. It'll help all of the other students who are too cowardly to raise their hands. Um, everyone will benefit. So by all means, keep those silly questions coming. I am always in the mood to answer a weird and possibly stupid question. Always. Like, I live for that stuff. Um, so absolutely keep them coming. Um, that's it for the conduct sections. Let's talk about some of the other businessy things about this class. First off, the attendance policy. Again, we only meet so many times in this class because of the hybrid schedule. Like, I think we have 16 total meetings, maybe, probably less, because I'll undoubtedly be sick at some point. Um, so there's not a lot of room for error there. Um, if you miss three classes, you're already missing like a fifth of the class. Like you might as well, you know, not show up for a job every Friday at that point. Um, so if you have missed three classes, that's where your grade is going to start getting hurt. Um, now that said, this is three unexcused absences. Every unexcused absence after the third, I'm going to penalize with a 1% uh, deduction from your final grade. So, like, the pos the highest possible score you're going to be able to get at that point is, you know, a 99 out of 100. Like, this is different from the points. We'll, we'll get to that. Um, so you will get smacked around if you miss a lot of class. Um, but what this comes down to for you is just talk to me. Like, if you are sick, I don't want you to come to class. I don't know if you've heard this, but there's a pandemic going around, and we're trying very hard to keep it from spreading again, or spiking again, or any of the other bad things that could happen because there's a pandemic going around. So if you think you might have the disease represented in our pandemic, stay home, please. Like, for my sake, for your sake, for everybody's sake, please stay home, take care of yourself, get better, and then come to class later. Like, don't get other people sick. Don't feel obligated to have perfect attendance in this class. I'm not even going to reward you if that's the case. Like, I don't even have certificates or gold stars, so suck it. Um, stay home if you feel sick. Uh, likewise, if you can't make it to class because your car won't start or because you have some family emergency or whatever, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Don't stress about it. Don't think that, like, Professor Kislowski thinks less of you. Trust me, you are one of something like... 150 students I have this semester. I don't think of you at all. I mean, some of you I will think of sometimes, but not often. I have other things going on too, you know. Um, suffice it to say, don't break a sweat about the attendance stuff. The best thing you can do is just contact me about it. Write me a quick email. Professor, my car broke down. I can't make it to class today. Okay, that's an excused absence. You don't have to worry about your grade going down. Professor, I'm not feeling well today. It might be COVID. I'm staying home. Cool, fine, I will answer, no deduction, that's a totally excused absence. Professor, I am not sick today, but I don't like you, so I'm going to stay at home anyway. Okay, fine, probably going to be an unexcused absence on that one, but even so, you got like two freebies, don't worry about it. I'm going to take mental health days, you should take mental health days, don't like sweat, sweat it. We are all in a totally awful situation because it's 2022 and there's a pandemic and there are all these restrictions or maybe there aren't restrictions or maybe there will be restrictions or maybe restrictions will come into play like halfway through the semester. Who knows? We're all flying by the seat of our pants trying to survive until 2023. Don't make it any harder on yourself. 
don't sweat the small stuff. I'm certainly not going to. So if you are absent for any reason, just send me an email, let me know. I will probably excuse it, and you won't have anything to worry about. What you will have to worry about is if you miss all of class. Like if you are routinely missing class for whatever reason, if you like cannot come to class for a month on end, then you're going to be in hot water. Um, the fact, or I'm not going to say it again. I've said it like 16 times already. I'm not going to say the fact of the matter is. Um, you are not going to fail in this class because of your attendance. I am not going to punish you in this class because of your attendance. You will fail this class because you missed a whole bunch of assignments, or because you don't know what you're talking about, or because you half-assed it on various other assignments that you turned in online, not because you didn't show up a certain number of times. But the reason why you did half-ass that assignment, and the reason why you didn't know all the answers on the final exam, was because you missed all that class. So don't miss that many classes, and everything will be fine. Um, but it's going to come out, you know, in the wash, not because I... I'm arbitrarily punishing you for an arbitrary number of dates being missed. So don't miss too much class. We'll be fine. If you do miss class, let me know, and we'll be fine. Everything will be great. Um, other stuff, I will, in fact, be making office hours from time to time. I honestly haven't the faintest idea what that's going to look like, though, because this semester I am on campus at Montclair two days a week, Thursday after this class and Friday for my mythology class. And then, in both of these cases, I drive away and go to a different school. So on Thursdays, after I do teach this class, I drive away and I go to Ramapo and I teach a different class there. And on Fridays, I teach mythology, and then I drive away and I go to Brooklyn County Community College, and I teach a class on ethics there. So, I don't know when I'm going to have a whole lot of time for office hours. In all likelihood, they will be Thursday and Friday directly after class for about an hour or so. But I'm not going to make any guarantees that I'm going to be at any specific place at any specific time this semester. It's just not going to pan out that way. If you need to meet with me, like, more than just, you know, what an email or a message on Canvas will, will suffice, I highly recommend you catch me after class, talk to me about, like, either hanging out directly after class, or, for that matter, like, making an appointment, send me an email and say, hey, professor, can I meet you after class on Thursday? I'm really concerned about this paper, I'm really concerned about this assignment, or I'm really concerned about my grade, or whatever, and I will totally, like, accommodate and make sure that that happens. Um, but I'm not going to give you just straight-up office hours. I'm not going to say, you know, I will always be in this room at this time, because I won't be. Like, I will probably be flying by the seat of my pants in order to get to some place else by that time. Um, so if you need to meet with me, that's fine. We can make that work. Um, figure it's probably going to be a Thursday or Friday, or we're going to be on Zoom or something. Um... If you do want to meet me on a Thursday or Friday, catch me after class, or email me so you, I'll stay a little later after class, and we'll probably get the job done that way. Um, so again, we're doing this by appointment only, effectively. Um, if you need to contact me, that can be done. Just make sure I know we will schedule a meeting. Um, disabilities and special accommodations. If you have a disability, if you require special accommodations, if you are registered with the Office of Specialized Services or whatever they're calling it here, um, I get them confused across campuses, I apologize. Just let me know. 
like usually they send you a form to give to your professors. Make sure I have that form so I can change your quiz times accordingly or give you extra time on the exam or, or whatever you need. Um, it's real easy for me to do that stuff, but it's way easier when I know in advance. Um, so just let me know as soon as you possibly can what your accommodation is, how I need to meet that accommodation, and we can totally work on that. Um, likewise, if you need to record classes for that, whatever reason, remember... I am recording all of the lectures. They are all available online. You are welcome to record what actually transpires in the classroom. Um, if you don't want to do that for whatever reason, then feel free to just use the recorded lectures as they exist. Obviously, right now, you could pause, stop, rewind, do whatever you want to make sure you don't miss anything. Um, so take advantage of those resources. Um, next, academic integrity. Plagiarism will not be tolerated. Plagiarized assignments will immediately receive zero credit. That is important enough to say twice. Again, I am done with plagiarism. I am not tolerating plagiarism. I am not putting up with plagiarism. I will not accept your excuses where you say to me, Professor Kozlowski, I didn't know I was plagiarizing. Bullshit! You totally knew you were plagiarizing. And if you, in fact, aren't entirely sure what I mean by plagiarism, let's have a quick... 10-minute Professor Kozlowski's crash course in what plagiarism is, so we're all on the same page, and so you can totally not use that excuse later in December when everyone is, you know, panicking about late assignments. There are three forms of plagiarism. The first is the most obvious, and it's the one that everybody is familiar with. My student is reading through the Iliad, or probably more likely, is not reading through the Iliad, and some paper comes due, so they go on Sparknotes and they highlight a whole giant passage of summarizing the Iliad, and they copy it directly into a Word document or something, and they submit that Word document on Canvas as their assignment. I open the Word document to grade it, recognize that this is from Sparknotes, and that's clearly plagiarism. You get a zero on the assignment. Anytime that you duplicate material written by somebody else and do not give them credit for it, that's plagiarism. Anytime you represent somebody else's ideas or their thoughts or their words as your own words, that's plagiarism. And it's at its most obvious when students are literally just copy-pasting directly from a source into their text and pretending like it's their own work. It is also the easiest to catch which is why most students don't do that anymore. Most students go with method number two. Method number two is a student is not doing the reading, so they go on Sparknotes and they copy, and copy the entire body of what Sparknotes has to say, and they paste it not into a Word document, but into some box on some website somewhere, like Quillbot or Grammarly or any number of other potentially useful sites that are actually for, you know, qualifying your own writing. They're totally not for plagiarism. Just ask them, like, it's totally an accident that you can also plagiarize in these sites. I've got my eye on you, Quillbot. I see you! I'm coming for you! Um, and then what they do is they edit it. Like, Quillbot is like, hey, why don't you change the sentence around? Hey, why don't you use this word instead? And the student is like, yes, make all of those changes. I want you to completely change this paper so it is unrecognizable from the original source. And then once it has been changed, once all the sentences have been reorganized, once all the synonyms have been put in place, once the paper doesn't look anything like the original Sparknotes page, they copy the new stuff, put it directly into a document, and submit it as their own assignment. And I catch it as plagiarism, and I give them a zero on it. At which point, many of my students have said, But, Professor, 
It was not the word-for-word -word language of Sparknotes. So how could you possibly assume that this was plagiarism? In fact, I took this and ran it through Turnitin.com patent pending plagiarism checker, and it said it was 0% plagiarized. Clearly, according to the number and the website, I have not plagiarized, and therefore you are wrong in assigning me a plagiarized grade. To which I will respond, no, that is still plagiarism. That was always still plagiarism. Recall that the definition of plagiarism, both that I just gave you and that can be found on Montclair State University's academic integrity policy, is that anytime you represent somebody else's words or ideas as your own, it is plagiarism. Moving a bunch of words around to make it not look like the original source does not constitute original work. You are just being a little bit more sophisticated in how you are plagiarizing. And, in most cases, you are in bad faith and you are trying to, you know, pull the wool over my eyes in this case. So that's also plagiarism. And I do find it, because most of the time it reads like an alien wrote it. Grammarly and Quillbot are actually fucking terrible writers, in case you've never actually seen that happen. Like, try this sometime if you haven't already. Like, take a chunk of text in a foreign language and run it through Google Translate and see if it actually comes out anything like what that text was actually saying. And you will see computers do not know how to write. At all. Like, they've got to be super-duper sophisticated to get even close to passing, as far as that's concerned. So, nine times out of ten, I am going to catch this butchered, manic, alien-wrote-this paper and recognize that it is a plagiarized assignment, and you will get a zero, and you will, in all likelihood, fail the assignment, and possibly the class. So, do not do it. Both of those are plagiarism. Both of them get zeros, both of them will tank your grade, and both of them will cause me to think very ill of you in the future. So when I say original work, I mean it. I want you to start with a blank piece of paper, and I want you to have nothing in front of you except the text you are working from and your own pile of ideas, whether imagined or in notes form or on your laptop, and for you to produce from those sketchy outlines and notes something that you and you alone have come up with. Maybe it will sound suspiciously like other ideas found online, but it will not line up with them, and I will not accuse you of plagiarism, even if you have accidentally repeated something that somebody else said somewhere at some point in time. It's just not how it works. Like, trust me, I can explain this more if you want. Now, the third kind of plagiarism is the fuzziest, and that's paraphrase. Paraphrase is, you go on Sparknotes, and you're like, wow, this is a really good argument that has been made about Homer, and rather than copying it and pasting it or doctoring the language or whatever, you paraphrase it. You turn it into your own words. You basically summarize what Sparknotes had to say about the Iliad. And you put it into your paper, and you submit it as your own assignment, and I look at it and I'm like, wait a minute. Here in paragraph one, this matches exactly the idea that Sparknotes is bringing up in their paragraph one. And here in paragraph two, it's the exact same point that Sparknotes is making in their paragraph two. And here in paragraph three, it's the exact, and so on and so forth. And then I'm like, okay, this is clearly paraphrased and therefore plagiarized, so you get a zero. But the really important thing I want to stress here is that there is a very easy solution to this problem. If, instead, my student had done the exact same thing, produced the exact same paper, and then put a little asterisk at the bottom of the page that said, P.S. Professor, I consulted Sparknotes in the making of this paper, we're good. 
I will give you a grade. You will not be accused of plagiarism. Nothing bad will happen to you. Everyone will go home happy, except maybe if it's totally paraphrase, then I'll be like, well, this isn't very original, so I'm going to, like, dock a bunch of points for that reason. But generally speaking, like, we're good. No argument. No disciplinary hearing. No, you know, crazy emails back and forth with my department chair. Nothing like that. You are good. And this goes for the other forms as well. If you tell me that you are directly quoting a page and a half of Sparknotes, I'm not going to accuse you of plagiarism. I'm going to accuse you of not producing original work. All you have to do is cite your sources. So, in this class, when you are in doubt, cite everything. Like, I recognize the Iliad is going to sometimes be tough reading, and you're going to go online, you're going to find videos about the Iliad, you're going to read Sparknotes. That's fine. Like, read Wikipedia, read Sparknotes, go to, you know, other summary sites and see what they have to say about it. That is totally cool with me. But let me know that you did it. If you cite everything, we're good. You're not going to be accused of plagiarism. You're not going to get points taken off for plagiarism. Again, I'm hoping that you do more than that by the end of this semester, for sure. But even if you never read the Iliad at all and rely entirely on Sparknotes and all of their summaries for it, as much as it's going to hurt your performance on later assignments, for sure, I'm not going to get mad about it. Like, you learned the material one way or the other. Like, I don't know what your life is. Maybe you really didn't have the time to do this. Maybe you are, in fact, you know, a single mom who is working three jobs and also taking full-time classes. Like, it's happened in my classes before, so I try not to judge. Do what you need to do, in short. Use other sources. Use the internet at your disposal. You'd be crazy not to. It's right there! But make sure that you let me know when you're using that stuff so I don't accuse you of something that isn't fair. Like, if you referenced Wikipedia when you were writing your paper and then didn't cite it, and I catch something about Wikipedia, or from Wikipedia there, and I accuse you of plagiarism, that kind of sucks, because that wasn't your intention. You just sort of, like, subconsciously repeated what Wikipedia was saying. So just tell me, Professor, I consulted Wikipedia before I wrote this paper. And we're good. No problem. Now, if you have any questions about citation, about plagiarism, about what exactly the rules are here, about how I discern what's going on, feel free to send me an email. I will happily answer any and all questions you have about plagiarism, about citation, about all that stuff. Or go to the Writing Center. Talk to them. They will absolutely walk you through the way that you cite in MLA style and all the other styles, and you'll get totally informed about what plagiarism is and why you shouldn't do it and so on and so forth. But let me emphasize... If you do not know what plagiarism is, either because your high school teachers totally failed you on that front, or because you haven't had a college class that has really expected you to write your own papers, or whatever, it's up to you to fix that by the end of the semester. Like, I'm not going to, you know, teach a class on what plagiarism is and how to properly cite sources, though I will, in fact, spend a day talking about research methods and so on and so forth, and we can cover that stuff there. But if you don't know the difference between plagiarizing and not plagiarizing, heck, if you do know the difference, or you think you know the difference, and you have even the slightest bit of doubt that you might not actually have it 100% under control, send me an email. We will sort this out. We will figure this out. We will make sure that everything is done. But if you come to me in December, after I've said that your paper is plagiarized, and said, but professor, I didn't know I was supposed to say, nope, nope, nope. We're not going to have that conversation. Because we had this one. Because I told you. It's on you.
So if you, in fact, do have a problem here, I will help you fix it, but you got to reach out to me. you got to let me know you want to get this fixed. So don't plagiarize. Again, Professor Kozlowski is a giant dick over and over and over again throughout the paper will go way better for you than plagiarizing well. So do not do it. Anything would be better. Turn in a slapdash assignment, turn it in half-assed, turn in, you know, giant piles of Sparknotes with quotes around it and a citation that says, I pulled everything that I wrote in this paper from Sparknotes, and you will still do better in this class than you would if, in fact, you plagiarized. So just, just don't. Just don't plagiarize. Moving on. Let's talk about how to be a student in this class. Now, I have a whole page devoted to this in the syllabus, and I do this anytime that I'm teaching an all-online class or a class that's half online, like this hybrid section. I want to emphasize the way that this class is structured is designedly as though it were a twice-a-week class, because that's how I'm going to be teaching this class in virtually any other format. Um, so we're going to be working, because we're in a hybrid class, we're going to be working on this as though it's on a weekly basis. And I am effectively going to be teaching you two lessons each week, and one of them is just going to be entirely online and recorded. Um, so notice the instructions here on this page, how to be a student in the class. First off, let me stress, if you've taken any online classes before, either at college or in high school, you probably already know this. It's really easy to just kind of let it slide and everything gets left behind. It's really easy to sort of get doing something else for a while and totally lose track of how many classes you are behind and end up backlogged under like four weeks of back classes and readings and so on and so forth. That is the surest way to tank your grade in this class. And it is the one that will be the most tempting for a number of reasons in this class. So let me emphasize the best thing you can do right here and now at the beginning of September or August, whenever this is that you're listening to this, the best thing that you can do is get into a routine for this class as quickly as possible. Um, get into a habit of reading the material for this class on a certain day, of listening to the lecture for this class on a certain day, of completing the assignments for this class on a certain day. Maybe you're one of those who wants to do it all at once. So on Mondays, you're going to sit down, you're going to read all the course material, you're going to listen to the lecture, and you're going to take the quiz and just do nothing until class on Thursday. That's fine. Or maybe you'd prefer to do it piecemeal. You're going to read 15 minutes on Monday, and you're going to read 15 minutes on Tuesday, and you're going to read half an hour on Wednesday, and you're going to do all the assignments on Thursday. That's fine. Whatever you, whatever works for your schedule, whatever fits your style, you do your thing. But importantly, you need to do the following. First, make sure you read and watch all the material for the week. That could be readings from the Iliad, the Odyssey, or otherwise. That could be videos that I've posted for you to watch for various reasons. That could be articles that I've posted for you, or handouts, or stuff from the Cambridge Companion to Homer. Um, it could be other crazy stuff that I've posted for whatever reason. Who knows? Go through the Canvas modules page. This is where it will all be located in chronological order for your convenience. And just break it down. Boom, boom, boom. It says to read this, write this, do this. So you read this, you write this, you do this. Move on to the next thing. Um, like I said, each class will function as though it's got two different sections. There will effectively be two different readings. Um, so... One of them will be covered in the recorded lecture for that week. Um, now that said, I'm going to be posting both court recorded lectures each week. 
I will be posting the one that you are required to listen to, the first lecture of the course uh, that week. So, for example, next week we are doing two things, and by next week I mean like in three weeks because our schedule is so wonky because Thursdays, I don't even know what Montclair is thinking. I don't know. I have no idea. And I'm so mad about it. Um, at any rate, for the, what is it, the 26th, I think, is the time that we're meeting? I don't remember. Um, I have it. I have it. It's, it's written down. 22nd, my mistake. For the 22nd, i.e. in two weeks, um, you will be responsible for two things. You have to read the passage from Apollodorus's Library of Apollodorus on the Trojan War, which is basically a summary of the entire Trojan cycle, as, at least as far as Apollodorus has it. Um, and you're going to have to read the essay from the Cambridge Companion to Homer on style and type scenes and... Uh, I forget the other thing that he says. Um, so two things. You have to read the, the Trojan War uh, myth, and you have to read the Homer-style thing. Um, now, it's up to you how you want to organize that. You could read the Trojan myth, and then listen to the lecture, and then read the, the paper on style. Or you could read all the things, and then listen to the lecture, and then wait for class. Up to you. Um, but make sure that all of that gets done by the time that you come to class on Thursday the 22nd. Um, treat it as two separate things, treat it as one big thing, totally up to you. By all means, listen to my lecture as you're driving to, cam to campus, if that's the way you want to do it, though I imagine that my lecture will be longer than your drive in most cases. Um, just make sure it's all done. And then once you have listened to the lecture, once you have done all the reading, do the course uh, assignments for that week. Usually that's going to be a reading quiz, sometimes it's going to be a response paper, sometimes it's going to be a response paper and a reading quiz, sometimes it's going to be something big, in which case I'll usually drop the quiz and the response paper for that week. Um, whatever the case may be, make sure that you get that done. It is usually required before a class, but for the big papers, they'll tend to be due on the Saturday after our class instead. Um, and then obviously, shop the class. Like, that's it. Get into that habit. Pick your days and get them oriented so you are constantly remembering these things. When in doubt, check the Canvas modules page. That's where everything is located. Um, look through. Make sure you've done all the reading. Make sure you've done all the writing. Make sure that everything can be like checked off, so to speak, and you will be fine in this class. That's the rhythm that you need to accustom to. That's the way that I'm going to be teaching it. That's how you should get familiar sort of reading and taking it all in. Um, now that said, let's talk about grades and assignments, because again, this is going to get weird. Um, so I know that usually when you were in a class at Montclair, the way that you were going to have your grades is your teacher is going to tell you to do this, write this paper, take this test, I will give you a grade out of 100 on it, and then all of those things will be averaged together at the end of the semester, and then bam, you've got a grade. I've always had reservations about that particular style of doing things, so we're not going to do it in here. Uh, I am pioneering my new grading system, which is different and has its own sort of problems and, and benefits, and we'll get into that in a moment. Um, but the way this is going to work is all you need is points. Every assignment you complete in this class will get you a certain amount of points. Um, there is a maximum number of points you can receive on that assignment, and there is the actual amount of points that you will receive for each of those assignments basically will always be short of the maximum, um, or usually anyway. And then at the end of the semester, as long as you've got 500 points, you win. The class is over. You are done. 
Um, and even when I say 500 points, that's a bit of an exaggeration. In order to get an A-plus in this class, all you need is 465 points. That would be basically a 93% of the points that you would need in order to, you know, get the maximum 500. Um, so all you need is 465 points. I don't give a fuck how you get them. Like, there are tons of assignments in this class. You can get well over 500 points in this class if you are so inclined. I think the maximum that you could theoretically get is somewhere around 1,000, in all honesty. Um, suffice it to say, you will not be hurting for points if you want to get them. Um, so you can take a number of different approaches to this. You can front load your class and get as many points as you possibly can as early as you possibly can, which will probably mean you'll still have to take the final exam or still have to uh, write some version of the final research paper. But since you've done all the work, the heavy lifting at the beginning of the semester by December, you're going to be home free. Or alternatively, maybe you just want to write one big paper this semester, which is totally fine with me. You can write a 500-page research paper for this class, and that might very well be the only assignment you turn in, and I'm totally cool with that. I will give you a grade for that, and that will be your grade. Um, it's also possible to, do, to just mix and match, like to work steadily throughout the semester, work up to that big assignment at the end of the semester, either the final or the research paper or both. There are lots of ways to potentially get through this class. Um, all you've got to do is get 465 points by any means necessary between then and now. Now, I have, in fact, tried this system out. I tried it at Ramapo last semester. It was the first time that I ever tried it. And it had some mixed results. On the one hand, I found a lot of students really jumped into it. Like, some of the students who were really into this got totally 500 points or more. Heck, I had one student who had something like 650 points by the time the semester was over. It was nuts. Um, many of them turned in big, whopping papers. They were felt like they should be ambitious, and they did some really great work, and I was really impressed with some of the papers that I got and some of the work that was turned in. Like, these were by far some of the best papers that I'd ever received in five years of teaching. But I also had a bunch of students who only got, like, 100 points by the time the semester ends. And there are a number of reasons why that could be the case. Might be just the student's disposition. Might be the fact that it was, you know, 2022, and it was just pandemic weirdness. Suffice it to say that there is a great danger that accompanies this level of freedom. On the one hand, this is great for you. You can pick exactly what you want to do, when you want to do it, and I'm never going to tell you that you were bad for doing it one way or another or whatever. Like, it's never going to happen. Likewise, you're never going to get punished for an assignment. You're never going to lose points. You're never going to have an A in this class, and then you, like, bomb the final, and now you have a C-. minus. Like, that is impossible in this structure. But it does mean you have to stay on top of it. You are very much responsible for your own grade in this class. You are going to decide how you get your points. I will not. Like, I'll give you warnings from time to time. I'll say, you know, hey, this due date is coming up. It's a big deal. Make sure you turn something in if you you know, are planning to do this assignment, but I'm not going to, like, slap you around and say, you know, you can only pass this class if you turn in this paper. The fact of the matter is, until the very last day of class, you could still turn your grade around. That's by design. But it's also entirely possible that it'll be, like, December, and you have turned in nothing for this class, and you come to me and you're like, Professor, how do I not fail? 
And I will say, did you do the reading? And you said, no, because I didn't want to do the reading quizzes. And I'll say, did you in fact like show up to any of the lectures and listen to all the material? And you'll say, no, because there was nothing that required me to do that. And I will say, then you are going to be in a lot of trouble. Because you can't write a massive, awesome paper at the end of the semester unless you've been working fairly steadily throughout the semester to prepare for it. It's going to be on you to budget your time and your resources and your energy appropriately. And if you do it really smart, you can absolutely enjoy the crap out of this class and do only what you want to do when you want to do it and to have a great time. But it also means that it might be December before you realize how badly off you actually are. So let me stress, every version of getting 500 points in this class requires you to read the Iliad. Every version of getting 500 points in this class requires you to do most of the reading in this class. Every version of you getting 500 points in this class requires you to turn in assignments on time and to do well on those assignments in some respect. There's no version that doesn't have that. It's designed not to work that way. So do not sink into complacency. Do not think everything is okay when it's not. You should plan to be working throughout the semester, no matter what version of this point system you decide to take up. You need to do the work, in short. As much as you can game this system, and it is designed to be gamed, as much as you can manipulate this system to your advantage, and it is designed to be manipulated, what you can't do is get a good grade in this class without doing any work. Like, if you have a particular view on how what the minimum amount of work looks like, by all means, follow it. Like, I had a student last semester in my sort of experimental version of this class who literally came to me at the beginning of class, and said, I am planning to get a C- minus in this class. And I was like, go for it. If you want to go the minimum amount of work route, it can totally be done here, and that too can work to your advantage. If you are aiming for the C or the C-, minus, cool. I will help you. Like, ask me and I will give you tips. But you're not going to be able to pass unless you do the work. That is not how the system works. It is designed to frustrate you if that is in fact the case. So you're going to have to take some reading quizzes, or you're going to have to take on some big assignments, or you're going to have to do the final exam. That's a given. The best approach, then, is to plan out your attack right now. Like, take a look at what the grades and assignments are valued as, how they're offered, think about them as I'm describing them to you, and then decide what exactly you want to do, how you want to approach each of these. Um, so that said, let's talk about the individual assignments. First and foremost are the reading quizzes. They will be the earliest assignments you have access to. They are the ones that you will see the most frequently. The way that the reading quizzes work, they are simple 10-question multiple-choice quizzes. They will appear the week before they are due on Canvas on the modules page. You will have that week to complete them, and then they are due before class the day that they are due. Um, every question you get right, you get one point. Every question you get wrong, you get no points. That's it. Now, these quizzes are timed. They're very short and very carefully timed at 10 minutes apiece, so you're not wandering on Google the entire time looking for the answers. Um, they are low stakes. Again, only 10 points. But there are 10 of them, 
and add it up together, you have a total maximum of 100 points that you could potentially get. They're also pretty difficult. Like, as much as I'm saying there are only 10 questions and there are only 10 points, they tend to be pretty murderous questions. I have had many students complain about my quiz questions in the past. Be warned. Um, but again, this is all gravy. Like, you can get 500 points in this class by doing the quizzes, by doing the smallest version of each of the papers, and by turning in the final exam, and that's like it. It can totally be done. Um, so, you know, use them as you see fit. Take them. They are painless and require relatively little effort on your part. Um, but don't stress out if you're, not doing poor, if you're not doing terribly well on them. It's not the end of the world. There are a lot of other ways to get your points. Um, we also have the response papers, which are also low-stakes assignments. Um, each of the response papers are 25 points apiece, and there are only two of them. Um, but the response papers have a very specific purpose in this class. They are not major writing assignments. All I'm going to ask you to do is read whatever section of the Iliad we're talking about that week, and then write me a one-page open-ended response about it. Literally anything goes. You can write about whatever it is that you found interesting in the Iliad, like, sky's the limit, do whatever you want. I'm not going to give you very much guidance about it. Um, you'll get 25 points for a completed assignment, and I'll also encourage you to take them because I'm going to give you more points than I usually would for an assignment like this. Your grade will be inflated more than, say, the research paper or the homework paper will be. You will typically get better grades on the response papers than any other assignment in this class, in fact. So it is the easiest 50 points you are likely to get. But the reason why I assign them this way is because I want you to get familiar writing about this stuff and familiar writing for me. For each of the response papers, you can turn in a hard copy of the response paper and I will grade the ever-living shit out of it. Like, I will take a red pen and mark it to hell and back. I will give you all the feedback you could ask for and then some. And the idea here is this is how I'm going to help you with your writing. This is a gen ed class. There's a pretty hefty writing requirement associated with it, and part of the assumption here is that I am helping you with your writing as we go along. For some professors, that looks like turning in drafts of a big final paper. I don't like that so much. I like seeing finished work. I think that the drafting process should be all on your own, and I know that most students blow off the drafting process anyway, so we're not going to do that. What we're going to do is have these little bitty assignments, and you can complete them, again, optionally, and you can turn in a hard copy, at which point I will grade the living crap out of them and give you lots of feedback that will hopefully help you in bigger future assignments. So you are strongly encouraged to take on one of the bigger like research paper formats or the bigger version of the Homer paper, but do the response papers beforehand so you know that you're doing stuff that uh, that I am going to appreciate and grade well. Like, I've had classes where, you know, the professor would come into the beginning of the class and say, the entire grade for this class is going to be based on your final paper, which is 20 pages long and due on the last day of the semester, and you would work really, really hard at making sure that this paper was perfect, and then you'd turn it in, and the professor would be like, eh, it's a C-, minus," and he'd be like, what? That paper was perfect! I did everything that I could! And he's like, eh, it had too many commas. And you would tear your hair out, and there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like, professors are weird. I know it. Like, professors are frequently idiosyncratic. No two professors want the exact same thing. I get it. So here is an opportunity. 
fill in one of these wimpy little low-stakes assignments, get a decent grade on it, and know what I'm going to be asking for, what kind of weird shit I'm looking for when I go grading. Um, this is a great way to prepare you for the big stuff that's coming down the pike, which means the homer paper and the research paper. Um, there are two major papers in this class, and by major, I mean that relatively. They're as major as you want them to be. Both papers have a scaling grading system attached to them. Um, so the size of the paper will mean how many points you get for that paper. Um, so the Homer paper is our first paper. It's due roughly halfway through the semester, a little after half, because, again, our schedule was weird. Um, it is on basically just the Iliad and the Odyssey. Like, I'm going to ask you, what are one of the values that Homer expounds in the Iliad and the Odyssey? Tell me how he, you know, communicates that value, how he prescribes the way that Greek citizens are supposed to follow that value. Like, there's a wide variety of stuff. We'll talk about that more as we get into Homer, and it should be very obvious based on the amount of time we spend talking about Homer's values, his themes, the way that he communicates Greek ideas. Um, we're not going to get into that too deeply here. Uh, but what I do want to stress is that you can get a different grade on this paper depending on how much effort you put into it. If you turn in a 1,000-word paper, i.e. roughly four to five pages, you will get 100 points for the paper. Not, like, guaranteed it's going to be out of 100, you know, like, 100 points is the maximum value that you can get on that paper. If you turn in a 1,500-word paper, which roughly amounts to six to seven pages, then I will give you 150 points maximum for the paper. And if you turn in a 2,000-word paper, roughly eight pages, then I will give you 200 points for the assignment, which, if you're playing along at home, is a potential 40% of the 500 points you need to pass this class. So you could spend a lot of time on the Homer paper, or you could spend just a little bit of time on the Homer paper and get a grade accordingly. Or you could not do the Homer paper at all and do something else entirely. Again, everything is optional. But by scaling it, that means that what you put in will reflect what you get out. And that also means if you are diligently doing the reading quizzes, do both of the reading responses, and do the biggest version of the Homer paper, you are now looking at 350 to 400 points, and it's only November which means you could get off pretty well scot-free for the entire month of December, if that's how you want to do things. So keep that in mind. Um, likewise, the research paper, which is the big paper at the end of the semester, also scales. But this time, rather than being on a 50-point scale, it is on a 100-point scale. So you can turn in a four-page research paper and get 100 points for it. Or you can turn in a six-page research paper and get 200 points, or an eight-page and get 300 points, or a 12-page and get 500 points on it. The sky is really the limit here. You could put a lot of work into one paper that is 20 pages long this semester and get 500 points for this paper, and that's your entire grade, if that's what you want to do. Now notice, this is the big cumulative paper assignment, and it's going to be real hard to get a decent grade in this class without doing some form of it or the final exam. So it's kind of up to you how you want to balance all that. What it comes down to is four possible questions that you are answering, all of which are relevant not just to Homer, but Homer's reception going forward in the class and through history. 
So the first question, did the Trojan War actually happen? Use the archaeological evidence and historical evidence to back up your argument one way or the other. Question two, who was Homer? Does this person actually exist? Again, use the historical evidence, the archaeological evidence, the literary evidence to back this up. Third, how was the Trojan War and Homer's telling of it used for political ends by other cultures like the Greeks, Romans, etc.? So you'll be reading Homer, but you'll also be reading the Aeneid or possibly the uh, or Euripides reading or any number of other things. And fourth, how is the style, story, and language of Homer's epics informed later writers like Virgil, Dante, Milton, etc.? All of these are going to involve not just Homer, but other class readings as well. Some of the articles that we read from the Cambridge Companion to Homer, some of the other writers that we've read, like Virgil or Dante or Milton or Euripides. Um, in every case, you will need to do more than just read Homer and know the Iliad and the Odyssey pretty cold. You're going to need to apply that. And again, it's going to be real hard to get through this class without doing either this paper or the final exam. Like, that's just the way it shakes out here. It's almost like I planned it that way. Uh, but again, you can put as much effort as you want into this paper. If you wanted, you could make the entire course you writing a giant paper about Homer and Dante and Milton and Virgil, or whatever question you want to address here. Now, keep in mind, for both the longer versions of the Homer paper and all of the versions of the research paper, you are also expected to do outside research, which we'll talk about. Um, early on in the class, I suspect, we will have a day where we spend talking about research methods, writing methods, so on and so forth, so you will be prepared for both assignments as you see fit. Um, now again, the research paper is the one that I am, in fact, accepting late, and you'll notice why is because that grade can, all by itself, absolutely save an otherwise tanking grade. You can turn the 20-page paper of the 20-page version of the research paper in late and get a fairly significant point deduction. It might even be 100 points at that point, um, but still get a decent grade in this class, even if it is like the third to last day of the class or something. Um, likewise, we have an attendance and participation score, which is on a 50-point scale. Um, basically, what the attendance and participation score boils down to is that's where I'm going to be knocking off points if, in fact, you you know lose, uh, if you do not have if you do not have an excuse for the, all of your absences later on in the semester. Like if you miss a substantial end of class, that's where you will get penalized. Everybody gets an attendance and participation score, so that's like guaranteed points at the end of the semester. Um, the participation side of it, though, if you want a perfect 50 out of 50 for your attendance and participation score, all you have to do is show up to class every day and raise your hand with one substantial question or comment every class. That's it. Like, you will still get a decent attendance and participation score even if you don't do that, as long as I know where you're at. Like, if you've emailed me about assignments or if you've talked to me before and after class or if you met with me about a paper at some point, you're still very likely to get, like, a 40 or a 45 out of 50 uh, for the attendance and participation score. But if you want the perfect score, that's what you got to do. Raise your hand every time. Do that, and you're guaranteed 50 points at the end of the semester, um, which, you know, may very well make or break where you're at. Um, last... Lastly, there is, in fact, a final exam. We will, in fact, take it on the final day of class. Um, we'll have a review day devo devoted to it, which the way that it works out in this class is... <sighs> I hate the schedule so much. We will have the review day the day before the final because we are meeting both days back-to-back. -back. I don't know why. This is just insanity, but this is the way it's going to work because Thursdays in this semester... I don't know what that holiday is in two weeks. <sighs> Whatever. 
Anyway, there will in fact be a final exam. It's worth a potential 150 points, which can again absolutely make or break a grade. Um, so figure, again, because all of this is optional, because all of this is according to your own scheme of getting through the class, start thinking about how you want that to look now. Think about whether or not you want to turn in one of the bigger paper ideas, like either the 200-point version of the Homer paper or the 200-point version of the research paper or both, or for that matter, one of the really big versions of the research paper, like the 300, 400, or 500-point version, because you should probably start working on that now. Start thinking about what you want to write about for that now, if in fact you want to take on one of the more ambitious assignments. And let me encourage you to do so. I love reading those longer papers. I think they're better suited to these sorts of classes. I would absolutely help you as much as I can. Like, I'll look over early drafts and stuff. By all means, for any of the papers in this class, if you want me to look it over beforehand, let me know and I will. Like, not so much for the response papers, because, again, they're short and delicate, and the whole point is for me to, like, give you feedback on them afterwards. But if you want to take an ambitious stab at the homer paper or the research paper and you want me to look it over beforehand i totally will just let me know and i will help however i can um if you want this to be the semester this to be the, cl the class where you really learn how to write a knockout research paper we can totally do that here just let me know and i will help you however i can um and that generally is the watchword for this class again the great disadvantage of the hybrid class is you're going to spend less time in class with the fellow students and me than you would normally for a class at Montclair. Make up for that by contacting me often. Like, send me emails, ask me questions via emails, send me messages on Canvas, pick my brain, ask me how my day's going. Like, any of that, any connection that you make will benefit both of us in the long run. Because it means that I know where your head is at, and that a, brings up your class participation score, but also helps me to understand how I can help you for future assignments. But also, B, it makes me less terrifying. Like, I, I promise, I, I have not actually attacked any students. Nobody has gotten their head bitten off by me in my class, no matter how much I may have wanted to at any one point. Um, make sure that the two of us are communicating, and that will go way better for you this semester, and will help you to make sure and get the grade that you want, rather than losing track of things and getting totally slammed at the last minute, or worse, getting a failing grade because you didn't get your figures in a row correctly. Um, help me to help you, in short. Reach out. Have that conversation. Meet with me sometime. Let's talk. And that will help you immensely. Um, but that's it. Like, back page of the syllabus is literally just the schedule of readings, which you'll notice, again, like I talked about earlier, we're going to start by reading the Iliad and the Odyssey. Now we're going to jump into some of the other Homeric scholarship, both about Homer's time and about the Greek classical world. And then we're going to talk about other writings going forward, starting with the Romans that talk about Homer and use his writing in a variety of different ways, political or otherwise. Um, if you have any questions, if you have anything that you want to talk about, feel free to email me, feel free to message me on Canvas, feel free to open that channel of conversation even before the class starts. I will be happy to talk to you, happy to help you any way that I can. Um, in the meantime, I look forward to meeting with you come September when that in fact happens. Again, I'm recording this very early. It is June right now.
right now. Um, but yeah, so I'm totally looking forward to running this class with you. I'm totally looking forward to recording more lectures for you. I'm totally looking forward to talking with you about the Iliad, about the Odyssey, about these other writings, and about Homer's world and the world that Homer created in one sense or another. In the meantime, have fun. Enjoy your reading. I'll talk to you soon.